Hello, and welcome to the Androgen Axis Agents and Bone Target Therapies in Advanced Prostate Cancer, What's New, live webinar. My name is Michelle, and I will be your operator for today's call. At this time, all participants in our listen-only mode. Please note that this conference is being recorded. I will now turn the call over to Ms. Helen Schofield. Ma'am, you may begin. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to our third webinar in this four-part series. If you missed the first or second webinar in this series, please visit AUA University to access the webcast and podcast versions of those activities. I would like to thank course director, Dr. David Gerard, and faculty, Dr. Kristen Scarpato and Dr. Kelly Stratton, for joining us today. The AUA is accredited by the ACCME, and this live activity is designated for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Evaluations are very important to us, and they will be available electronically on AUA University immediately following this course. Upon completion of the evaluation, you will have an opportunity to record your CME credit. You will need a keyword to access the evaluations and CME credit claim. This keyword will be given to you at the conclusion of today's webinar, so please stay tuned for the very end of the webinar. All persons in a position to control the content of an AUA educational activity are required to disclose any relevant financial relationships with any commercial interest. The AUA disclosure policy is listed here, and faculty and education council disclosures can be found on AUA University. The AUA would like to thank the following companies for providing independent educational grants in support of this webinar. Estellas and Pfizer, Inc., Daring Pharmaceuticals, Genomic Health, Janssen Biotech, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, Sanofi Genzyme, and Tolmar Pharmaceuticals. Coding advice given during presentations are the opinion of the presenters and may not have been vetted through the AUA for accuracy. Please verify accuracy prior to reporting on medical claims. And finally, we hope that you will actively participate tonight. Please interact with us and the faculty and feel free to ask questions at any point using the chat box on your screen. I will now turn the webinar over to course director, Dr. David Gerard. Thank you, Helen. Good evening, everybody. Welcome. Uh, welcome to our faculty as well. So our learning objectives tonight uh, consist of the following, uh, discussing the molecular mechanisms and characterizations of castrate-resistant prostate cancer. We'll talk about specific recommendations uh, within the practice guidelines. Another goal is to identify those approved androgen biosynthesis and receptor blockers for the treatment of castrate-resistant prostate cancer. We'll also Apprise the clinical use and efficacy of these androgen axis therapeutics in that type of disease space. We'll uh, spend some time discussing uh, dosing, management, side effects uh, from these therapeutic in interventions. And furthermore, we'll discuss some of the newer data coming out in the M0 space, although the majority of this has been presented in webcast number two uh, in this series. It's important to identify comorbid states and their impact on patients taking these drugs. We'll delve a little bit into treatment sequencing. And then we'll also talk about some of the advances in bone health management and uh, how it applies to patient-specific care plans. And further, uh, more talk about uh, radionucleotide therapy in appropriate patients with symptomatic metastatic 
castration-resisted prostate cancer. I'd like to take a moment now to introduce the faculty, uh, starting with myself. My name is David Girard. I'm the Vice Chair of Urology at the University of Wisconsin and an Associate Director of the Carbone Cancer Center. I did my urologic training at the University of Chicago, followed by a fellowship at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Uh, areas of my interest include the management of advanced urologic cancers and their uh, biologic underpinnings. I'd also like to introduce uh, Dr. Kristen Scarpato. She's an assistant professor of urology at Vanderbilt, and she completed her fellowship in urologic oncology there. Prior to this, she completed a residency at the University of Connecticut. She's actually the program director for the urology residency. In addition to urologic cancer, expert, cancer expertise, she does have active interest in residency education, surgical simulation, and global health. On the far left is Dr. Kelly Stratton, who is an assistant professor at the, of urologic oncology at the University of Oklahoma. He did his urology training at Vanderbilt University and furthermore did a fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And he has a number of interests, active interests in urologic cancers. So thank you for our esteemed faculty joining us this evening. Thank you. So now we'll go on to our first lecture. Uh, this is going to be presented by Dr. Kristen Scarpato, Dr. Scarpato. A pleasure to be here tonight with Dr. Gerard and Dr. Stratton. So over the next 20 minutes or so, we'll be talking about manipulating the androgen access and looking at the biosynthesis inhibitors and some of the receptor signaling agents. I'd like to acknowledge Dr. Lin and Dr. Ryan, who contributed some slides to this presentation. Uh, this is uh, our disclosure. This is an important schematic and one that I've seen presented in a variety of different ways. It shows the course of a patient, a not uncommon patient that we see, who develops CRPC. So on the left, the red line represents a PSA. The patient has a PSA that's elevated detected to have prostate cancer and undergoes local therapy with either surgery or radiation, has an appropriate response, but then unfortunately has a PSA rise and is administered androgen deprivation. And we can see over the course of uh, this slide, the patient goes from an asymptomatic patient who is responsive to androgen to one who becomes symptomatic and no longer responsive. And we'll go through some of these agents over the course of this discussion tonight. So we'll review the mechanisms for CRPC development, and hopefully by the end of this presentation, the, um, the attendee tonight will be able to understand some of the mechanisms and side effects of abiraterone, apalutamide, and enzalutamide, as well as the expanding applications for these oral agents. We'll start with a case, a 73-year-old male with CRPC, rising PSA. He was originally treated with XRT and has a biochemical recurrence. So recall the uh, Phoenix Astro definition, Nader plus two. Three years later, he develops a rising PSA while on Lupron and has a pretty fast doubling time of eight months. His PSA goes from 13 to 26, and his testosterone shows castration at 19, and imaging demonstrates new pelvic bony metastases as well as enlarged nodes in both his pelvis and his retroperitoneum. 
So what are the options for a patient like this? A very important discovery, a landmark discovery in CRPC was that the androgen receptor is actually amplified. And this slide demonstrates that. On the left, you can see immunohistochemical staining from a patient with CRPC. And the image on the right shows that um, on autopsy, patients with CRPC, up to 75% of them showed androgen receptor amplification. So that discovery has led to the discovery of the drugs that we now use to treat this disease. While this slide is a little bit busy, um, it, it describes some of the mechanisms for the development of um, CRPC. And these mechanisms can be either ligand independent, so things like co-activators or backdoor pathways, or they can be ligand dependent. And so we'll focus a little bit on some of those here in the slide because they pertain to the drugs that we'll be talking about. So down on the bottom left, there's androgen receptor promiscuity, which, so that's as it sounds. The androgen receptor will respond to molecules that are not androgen and be activated in that way. Or androgen receptor amplification, which refers to low levels of androgen and a hypersensitive receptor that, again, leads to um, activation. Then on the top right, we can see um, the adrenal androgen pathway noted, and that is also a ligand-dependent mechanism, and abiraterone works there. So we'll move on to talking about that mechanism. And Abirater I'll just, just interject for a, uh, sure. for a moment. Uh, it's important to emphasize that all of the therapies we use, abiraterone, enzalutamide, uh, even apalutamide, are all ligand-dependent, uh, depend on ligand-dependent mechanisms. There are a whole series of non-ligand uh, mechanisms that they're currently being drugs developed for. Uh, and again, these are ones that don't require ligand to bind. Uh, the future will, will determine whether these, uh, how these, well these work. Thank you. Abiraterone is an androgen synthesis inhibitor. And this schematic detects, um, sorry, shows a steroidogenesis. So we see starting with cholesterol, a series of reactions leading to DHEA and ultimately testosterone. Abiraterone uh, blocks the CYP17 uh, enzyme here. It inhibits the hydroxylase and lyase. And that not only leads to decreased testosterone, but also can impact uh, cortisol and aldosterone. And we'll talk about that when we get into some of the side effects of the medication. In 2011, we saw one of the first studies looking at the use of abiraterone and CRPC. And this was in the post-chemotherapy space, the Cougar 301 trial. Uh, 1,200 patients were enrolled, and they had undergone prior docetaxel. And we can see that there was a significant difference in overall survival with favoring the patients who received abiraterone over placebo. And also noteworthy was that all secondary endpoints, including time to PSA progression, progression piece survival, and PSA response, did favor the abiraterone group. The second study was then published in 2015, and this was in the pre-chemotherapy space. Um, this study also looked at overall survival um, and looked at radiographic progression-free survival in patients who, again, had not received prior docetaxel and we see um, favorable progression-free survival in patients in the um, abiraterone group. They also looked at quality of life outcomes in this Cougar 302 second study, 
and found that the median time to opiate use was longer, 33.4 months versus 23 months for patients who had received abiraterone. And certainly quality of life is an important factor in these patients with CRPC. The mechanisms for these drugs explain their side effects. So in terms of um, abiraterone, we see that in blockage of the CYP17 enzymes, the pathway is shunted towards um, production of aldosterone. And so this uh, mineralocorticoid uh, excess leads to increased salt. And so patients can have hypertension, they can have edema, fluid shifts, uh, low potassium, in addition to having um, uh, low cortisol requiring the drug to be taken with a steroid um, and the decreased testosterone. Some of these side effects can be quite significant and limit the use of the medication. The second Cougar 302 study uh, showed the safety data here, and we can see that fatigue, fluid retention, hypertension, and hypokalemia, as previously discussed, and also atrial fibrillation, which was related to some of these fluid shifts and fluid overload. Um, interestingly, there was also um, transaminitis, so increased ALT and AST seen more in the abiraterone group than in the control group. How can we minimize these side effects? Well, it's recommended that abiraterone be taken on an empty stomach, um, and it also needs to be co-administered with prednisone, which is typically given at 5 milligrams um, BID. We do need to check LFTs and BMP based on the side effects that uh, we just reviewed, and typically that's done two weeks after starting the medication, and then monthly, and then that can be spread out to quarterly, looking for um, LFT elevation or hyper hypokalemia. In, in line with that, these patients need to undergo fairly regular assessment for hypertension and fluid retention. And that can be done um, either in your clinic if you have a large support staff or you're working with advanced practice providers, but we often recommend that this is done in conjunction with a primary care doctor who can treat hypertension or hypokalemia as needed. And it's also just really important to remember drug-drug interactions, especially in some of these older patients who are taking other medications like um, Coumadin or CYP17 medications that can interfere with the metabolism. So, Dr. Scarpato, there's a question. Uh, it is, why do you continue androgen deprivation therapy uh, when these patients have castration-resistant prostate cancer? That's a very important question and a common one. Um, and this was looked at uh, early on, and patients who um, continued their androgen deprivation therapy actually had um, improved survival. Um, and it's thought that some of the um, prostate tissue is still responsive um, to the um, ADT, and it's, it's important to suppress the gonadal androgen completely. Thank you. So getting back to that original schematic, um, we're going to focus in on one of the new indications here for abiraterone. The uh, drug has been shifted up to an earlier uh, administration in the, develop in the course of uh, CRPC. The uh, most recent data is from the Latitude study, which was published in the New England Journal in 2017. 
And this study randomized 1,200 patients to either abiraterone and Lupron or Lupron alone. And the patients in this study were high risk, and the results were pretty remarkable. It showed delayed cancer progression by 18 months and a reduced risk of death by nearly 40% when compared with placebo. And significantly, quality of life was also impacted, so less pain in the patients in the abiraterone group and a longer time to receipt of chemotherapy, um, both very important things. The side effects that we had talked about before, though, were significant. There was hypertension and there, was, there were liver problems seen in the treatment group. But this now represents a viable option for patients with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer in conjunction with ADT. Yeah, and it's important for urologists to realize that metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer is a changing area. Again, this is distinct from castration-resistant disease. Uh, patients uh, should be placed on androgen depri deprivation therapy and docetaxel, which was the charted trial uh, in this space, or as shown in that latitude trial, uh, they should be considered for uh, abiraterone and androgen deprivation therapy. That's right. Uh, so which patients should we use this for? Um, this is for CRPC before and after chemotherapy, M1, and then just as uh, Dr. Gerard said, I may have misspoke before and said castration resistant, but hormone sensitive prostate cancer uh, with ADT, appropriate for those patients as well. I think we've talked a lot about the side effects and those are certainly important and should be considered when prescribing this medicine and also can help us decide which patients are ideal and which patients would be poor candidates for the drug. So poor candidates would be those who would not uh, tolerate systemic steroids, patients with brittle diabetes or chronic infection. And with patients who have rapidly progressive disease or visceral metastases, it might be more appropriate to start them on a docetaxel or another agent. Um, certainly patients with cardiac disease and heart failure or any liver dysfunction uh, would not be ideal candidates either. Let's get back to our patient. He had a good response to abiraterone in terms of his PSA and symptomatic improvement, but 10 months later, unfortunately, his PSA rises again somewhat rapidly and is now 50. He's having pain associated with this. So he received docetaxel uh, with six cycles and has improvement in his PSA and in his pain. His PSA meters at eight, but now the PSA is rising again. And so there's a lot of information that's just presented about this patient, and I think it's important to try and take a step back and think back to the AUA guidelines and think back to our index patients and look at all the various factors. Uh, is the patient metastatic? What treatments have they received before? Are they symptomatic? And this patient would fall into index patient five. So what are the options for this patient? Um, enzalutamide is certainly a, a reasonable option for, for this patient. It's an oral drug and it has a very high affinity for the androgen receptor. It not only, though, impacts androgen receptor binding, but it also works at multiple other steps in the signaling pathway, including nuclear translocation, which is inhibited, as well as association with the DNA and thus transcription, which is inhibited. Apalutamide, which we'll talk about again a little bit uh, later, um, has a similar mechanism of action and is used in asymptomatic patients, asymptomatic M0 CRPC patients. 
So are there any differences between apalutamide and enzalutamide? So very similar mechanisms of action, but somewhat different side effect profile. In the um, Spartan trial looking at apalutamide, there were still seizures, which you can see with um, enzalutamide certainly, but the thought is that perhaps this drug is less likely to cross the blood-brain barrier. And there were some issues with hypothyroidism that uh, were not seen um, with enzalutamide. Yes, uh, thank you. And, and also just important to emphasize that apalutamide is really approved only for the uh, M0 castrate-resistant uh, space. Uh, and again, enzalutamide is both metastatic uh, as well as uh, M0, so M1 plus M0. And uh, again, these new uses for these drugs, apalutamide, enzalutamide, was discussed in webinar number two. Great. The first time we saw enzalutamide in the literature for CRPC uh, was in 2012 in the New England Journal in the post-chemotherapy space. The AFFIRM trial was a phase three trial with nearly 1,200 men, and we saw improved overall survival with a 37% reduction in the risk of death versus placebo. And then again, similar to abiraterone, the second study was done with enzalutamide in the pre-docetaxel space, and we saw improvements in overall survival as well as radiographic-free, uh, excuse me, radiographic progression-free survival. And this was the PREVAIL trial. In terms of quality of life, that study also demonstrated extended time to initiation of chemotherapy, which is certainly important for these patients. There were a number of side effects associated with enzalutamide, and we'll just highlight a couple of them here. Fatigue was uh, quite significant in some patients, profound fatigue. There were hot flushes, fall associated with some hip fracture, hypertension was seen. And then the one that we're all very familiar with and certainly is important is seizure. There um, were seizures seen that were uh, were present in some patients, but it was rare. It was not a common side effect. It was um, definitely rare, but there is a, a warning on the medication for seizure. These side effects can be minimized and managed with dose reduction. So if there's pr profound fatigue, enzalutamide can be reduced by up to 50%. And many of these elderly patients take numerous drugs, and polypharmacy can be certainly an issue, but it's important to look for other drugs that may also lower the th seizure threshold, like bupropion. Um, the medication can be held and then restarted according to uh, its half-life, which is about eight to nine days. Which patients should endolutamide be used for? It's FDA-approved for men with metastatic CRPC, both before and after chemotherapy, and the newer indication is now for asymptomatic M0 CRPC, and this is based on the PROSPER trial, which uh, recently was, was published, and we'll talk just briefly about that at the end. The side effects, more notable ones are um, profound fatigue, which we had talked about, uh, as well as the seizure. So patients who are poor candidates for this medication would be those who have a history of neurologic disease, seizure, strokes, or uh, elderly patients who may have significant baseline fatigue. 
So there's very little to guide us on which agent should go first with advanced disease, particularly when we're referring just to abiraterone and enzalutamide. And so we have to consider the patient and the toxicity, as well as unique situations which may present themselves. As uh, briefly mentioned before, you know, if a patient has a rapid disease progression or significant symptoms, they may be better suited for docetaxel or some combination chemotherapy. One thing that we hadn't spoken about yet is financial toxicity, and that is definitely an important consideration, especially that uh, given these diseases, these drugs, medications can be very expensive and given over the course of um, several years. There was one small retrospective study looking at timing of these medications, specifically enzalutamide and its relation to uh, docetaxel and abiraterone. And this is a waterfall plot here demonstrating PSA response in patients given enzalutamide who had not received docetaxel or abiraterone or, and then compared them to patients who had received just docetaxel just abiraterone or both. And we can see that the response was better in patients who had not received any prior abi or docetaxel and somewhat blunted in patients who had, indicating that there might be some resistance that um, developed with, with um, these other medications, some overlap. Some practical considerations for when to administer which drug uh, what previous hormonal agents were used, how did the patient respond, was it a short duration of response or was there a durable response, what seems to be the pace of the patient's disease, do they have visceral lesions, and what is the patient like overall in terms of performance status, comorbidities, tolerance of the medications, and again considering financial implications and financial toxicity which is real with this um, disease. This is a summary slide just looking at comparing and contrasting enzalutamide and abiraterone. Certainly they have different mechanisms of action. Both are approved in the pre and post chemotherapy space, but enzalutamide has the unique indication for uh, earlier given an N0 disease, and abiraterone can also now be given in hormone sensitive patients in conjunction with ADT. Enzalutamide should be avoided in patients with a seizure history or those with profound uh, fatigue, whereas we have to consider the fact that abiraterone needs to be given alongside with um, prednisone and needs to be monitored more closely due to the risks of hypertension and hypokalemia. So ultimately, enzalutamide may be preferred in patients who cannot tolerate systemic steroids, whereas abiraterone might be preferred in patients with a seizure history or um, baseline fatigue or on uh, drugs that may interact like uh, Coumadin. And this slide here uh, shows some of the data from the Spartan trial, again in the M0 space. This was a trial looking at high-risk non-metastatic patients with CRPC who were asymptomatic, and apalutamide had showed a pretty remarkable result with a decreased risk of metastases uh, by 72% and prolonged um, metastasis-free survival by greater than two years. So these were patients who had a, a rapid doubling time, I believe it was less than 10 months, and um, did quite well with this medication. 
It has a familiar side effect profile, as we talked about, given the similar mechanism of action to enzalutamide with just those uh, small differences we spoke about before relating to hypothyroidism and perhaps a lower risk of seizure. And so both of these drugs now, enzalutamide and apalutamide, can be used in the M0 space. So the Spartan trial is the, um, the trial that gives us our, our apalutamide and PROSPER is in support of uh, enzalutamide in the M0 space. So wrapping it all up, abiraterone and um, enzalutamide or apalutamide are androgen receptor agents with distinctly mechanisms, distinctly different mechanisms, and therefore different side effect profiles. There are multiple phase three trials that support its use before and after chemotherapy in CRPC, and apalutamide and enzalutamide are also newly approved for asymptomatic M0 CRPC with patients who have a rising PSA, um, and there's really no established sequencing of enzalutamide and abiraterone. Thank you, Dr. Scar Scarpano. The, the, uh, there is a question, uh, and the question is, we know abiraterone is not indicated for MZO castration-resistant prostate cancer. Will it be approved in the future? There have been several small trials uh, looking at its use. It does appear to have benefit, but at the present time, again, it is not FDA approved in M0 space. Uh, the future we'll have to see as far as uh, some larger trials, uh, whether they're going to be undertaken. Uh, so Dr. Scarpato, 82-year-old uh, uh, who is currently using a cane and has an ECOG status of two, uh, who now uh, has been on androgen deprivation ther therapy and now has a rising PSA with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. For somebody like this with a poorer performance status, uh, would you consider abiraterone and dilutamide, docetaxel? What would be your option? I would probably first go to abiraterone, given um, the profound fatigue and risk of falls associated with dilutamide. Uh, yes, I think that sounds, sounds like a very reasonable option. So uh, if there are any other questions, go ahead and send them over uh, the, the uh, podcast. Otherwise, we'll move on to our next presenter. This is Dr. Kelly Stratton at the University of Oklahoma, and he'll be speaking on bone-targeted therapies and advanced prostate cancer. Okay, thank you. Um, so let's get started. Um, here are my disclosures. And uh, this talk uh, was put together with the help of Dr. Pinson and Dr. Borgion. So our learning objectives for tonight, we want to look at the specific recommendations from the AUA clinical guidelines regarding management of bone health and bone metastasis. Uh, we want to try to integrate bone health management into patient-specific care plans and really try to proactively prescribe and manage the side effects of uh, therapeutics for reducing skeletal-related events and metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. We'll also identify patients who may benefit from radionuclide therapy and try to manage any of the uh, side effects that could happen for patients who have metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. So the uh, relevance of bone health and castrate-resistant prostate cancer is twofold. The first is bone loss. Patients who have castrate-resistant prostate cancer are typically 
of the age that they may be uh, experiencing age-related bone mineral density loss. And specifically, androgen deprivation therapy causes bone mineral density loss. So it increases the risk of osteopenia, osteoporosis, and also fracture. Even within the first year of androgen deprivation therapy, a patient could lose between 2 and 4% of their bone mineral density. We also know that prostate cancer targets the bone, and so patients will experience bone metastasis. And these bone metastases put patients at risk for skeletal-related events, including fracture, core compression, and the need for surgery or radiation therapy. So the issue of bone loss is uh, predicated by the risk factors of age, uh, a history of fracture. Even a parent who had a hip fracture could increase somebody's risk. Low body weight, cigarette smoking, and also excessive alcohol consumption. Uh, specific to patients who have, cash, who have uh, prostate cancer, androgen deprivation therapy increases bone loss. Also steroid use, a history of radiation therapy, and other medicines like PPIs. So when we see a patient who has uh, prostate cancer and is on androgen deprivation therapy, and we want to start a workup for bone loss, we're going to get some baseline tests. The first is going to be a DEXA scan. We'll determine the patient's bone density. And we're really looking at the T-score for these patients. If their T-score is between minus 1 and minus 2.5, that represents osteopenia. Anything below 2.5 would be osteoporosis. We also want to consider some blood tests, so a, a serum calcium or creatinine, and a 25-hydroxyvitamin D may be helpful as well. For any patient who has a DEXA scan, we want to go a little bit farther, and we want to calculate their FRAX risk, which is a fracture risk assessment. It's based on an algorithm developed by the World Health Organization, and you can generate this score using an online calculator. It will give you two numbers, and they're both 10-year probabilities. The first is of hip fracture, and the second is of a major osteoporosis-related fracture. So, uh, Dr. Stratton, why is it important uh, to get a DEXA scan and a FRAC scan in these patients uh, as, a, as a baseline when they're on androgen deprivation therapy? It's important to get it as a baseline because these patients, over time, may develop bone mineral density loss. And that, those scores are going to help determine who needs treatment. So looking at this slide, you see uh, patients who are on androgen deprivation therapy, they're going to be at risk for bone mineral density loss, so they're going to all be recommended calcium and vitamin D. But additional treatment will be predicated off of the DEXA and the FRAC score. So if a patient has a DEXA T-score of less than 2.5, they're osteoporotic, and we're going to want to treat them for their bone mineral density loss. Even if they don't have osteoporosis, but they have a high risk for fracture, that will be predicated by the FRAC score. And so any patient with a FRAC score that shows a 10% probability of fracture greater than 20%, I'm sorry, 10-year probability of fracture greater than 20%, or a 10-year probability of hip fracture greater than or equal to 3%, those are patients who are at risk for fracture and will need treatment to increase their bone mineral density. There's a couple ways that we can increase the bone mineral density. The first would be to use denosumab at a dosage of 60 milligrams sub-Q every six months. Another way to do it would be with zoledronic acid, 
and that uh, dosage is 5 milligram IV every year. And there, another alternative would be alendronate, which is an oral medicine that's given 70 milligrams each week. Also for these patients, you would recommend uh, smoking cessation, um, only moderate intake of alcohol, and then you would prescribe them weight-bearing exercise. So just to reiterate this, a patient who has uh, osteoporosis based off of their T-score from the DEXA scan, they would need additional uh, treatment. And then a FRAC score that shows a 10-year probability of either major osteoporotic fracture greater than 20% or hip fracture greater than 3%. Those would be patients who need additional treatment. And to put that together with the landscape of castrate-resistant prostate cancer, this slide shows us really where we want to focus. So if a patient has hormone-sensitive disease, whether they have uh, metastasis in the bones or not, we're really going to be focused on bone mineral density and assuring that any patients who are at risk are treated for that. If they're castrate-resistant but they don't have bone metastasis, we're going to be focused on bone mineral density. But if they have bone metastasis and they're castrate-resistant, then we have to take it even one step farther, and we want to prevent skeletal-related events. And so we'll look at some treatments that will help us prevent skeletal-related events that we can prescribe to patients with castrate-resistant bone metastasis. Here are the AUA guidelines for castrate-resistant prostate cancer patients. And you see there are two specific guidelines for bone health. The first is that if a patient has castrate-resistant prostate cancer, they should be offered preventative treatments such as calcium and vitamin D. Now, there is no specific dosage recommendation within the AUA guidelines for calcium and vitamin D, but it is important for us to remember that calcium supplementation alone isn't enough to raise bone mineral density loss. And so you need to couple both calcium and vitamin D together to help uh, increase bone mineral density. We, do, or we can look to the National Osteoporosis Foundation for guidelines on how much calcium a patient should get, and that would be at least 1,200 milligrams daily. And for vitamin D, it would be 800 to 1,000 units daily. We know that for calcium absorption, it's better to divide them into uh, split doses. So we recommend uh, calcium and vitamin D supplements uh, twice a day. And you can do one in the morning, one in the evening. Specifically, calcium citrate has better absorption than calcium carbonate. So that, that's our calcium and vitamin D recommendation. Now, if a patient has cancer-resistant prostate cancer and they have bone metastasis, then we want to go one step farther and consider denosumab or zolindronic acid. Because again, at this point, we want to prevent skeletal-related events, and we have evidence to support these additional agents. Uh, and so that's part of the recommendation for both the AUA and for the NCCN. When we look at zolindronic acid, it's a bisphosphonate, so it works by inhibiting bone resorption. It's given as an IV infusion, and the dosage to prevent skeletal-related events is 4 milligrams every four weeks. So this would be different than for the dosage that a patient would get if they just have an elevated uh, FRAC score or if they have osteoporosis based off their DEXA scan. Zolindronic acid is the only bisphosphonate that, is, that has been demonstrated to benefit patients with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer because it's been shown to reduce skeletal-related events. 
However, it does have some toxicities associated with it. So that would be osteonecrosis of the jaw, hypocalcemia, nephrotoxicity, and then also a flu-like symptom that can happen whenever the patient gets their infusion. Denosumab is the next agent. It's a human monoclonal antibody versus rank ligand, and it works by inhibiting osteoclast-mediated bone destruction. The denosumab has two different dosing regimens as well, and so when we're looking to prevent skeletal-related events, we would give it sub-Q 120 milligrams every four weeks. Uh, like uh, zoledronic acid, denosumab can also cause osteonecrosis of the jaw and can cause hypocalcemia. So anybody who's going to start either of these agents, we want to get a dental exam first. We also want to monitor their calcium levels. This is an image of osteonecrosis of the jaw, something that we have to be very vigilant about. Uh, and really, it's any area of exposed bone in the oral cavity that may be associated with dental surgery or may happen spontaneously. And we certainly want to be vigilant for any patients who are on zoledronic acid or denosumab. Um, if, you, if a patient has a non-healing area in their oral cavity that lasts longer than six weeks, you're definitely going to want to have that patient evaluated by a dental health expert. Um, and we also want to consider that there could rarely be metastases to this area, so you would want to rule that out as well. If a patient is at risk for osteonecrosis of the jaw, we want to try and minimize that. One of the best ways to do that is to get dental uh, clearance or dental evaluation prior to starting it because you don't want a patient who needs a dental procedure to be started on uh, zoledronic acid or denosumab. That would put them at risk for osteonecrosis of the jaw. You also want to express to the patient to maintain excellent oral hygiene because that can really be a prophylaxis against uh, osteonecrosis of the jaw and certainly have them limit alcohol and uh, prevent tobacco use as well. Um, we recommend that Patients have a dental examination every six months. We also want a patient who may need to have a dental procedure to stop their agent. So if they, have a if they need a dental extraction, you want to stop that because having an extraction during the time when they're on bisphosphonate or denosumab increases your risk of osteonecrosis of the jaw from about 1% all the way up to 20%. And we, and we want to be specific also to patients who have dentures because many patients with dentures will say, well, I don't have any teeth, but if they have an ill-fitting denture, then that could also predispose them to osteonecrosis of the jaw. If osteonecrosis develops while they're on therapy, you really want to look at the risk versus the benefit of stopping. And for the majority of patients, you'll stop treatment. So you'll hold zoledronic acid or you'll hold denosumab, and you'll wait for that area to heal. The current uh, treatment regimens are focused on empiric management, so you'll be prescribing antibiotics or maybe an oral rinse. These patients should be evaluated by the, their dentist or oral health experts, so that can help them uh, with the antibiotic prescription as well. They may need some pain control, and certainly if they require debridement, you would want that to be done by an oral surgeon. Uh, cases that don't respond to this conservative management may need more aggressive treatment, but those would be investigational treatments like uh, surgical resection or hyperbaric oxygen therapy. So, Dr. Dr. Stratton, how frequently does osteonecrosis develop 
uh, in these with these, these agents. Well, osteonecrosis of the jaw is rare, but it can be a devastating side effect. And so uh, the, the, the treatment is really more of a prevention. So you want to have that patient evaluated by a dentist. It, it can be a little awkward for a patient because they, are, they have a hard time understanding the significance of dental hygiene when we're talking about bone health for castor-resistant prostate cancer. But certainly ensuring that a patient has any dental procedure and that they're completely healed before they start any of these agents is critical to preventing problems down the road. Great, thank you. So for patients with metastatic-catcher-resistant prostate cancer in whom we want to prevent skeletal-related events, you, you may uh, consider which treatment would be best. And so there was actually a, a study that evaluated the differences between uh, denosumab and zolindronic acid uh, in a randomized controlled trial. And this study reported that zolindronic acid, uh, or, or excuse me, this uh, study reported that denosumab was superior to zolindronic acid in the prevention of skeletal-related events. And so in the AUA guidelines, you'll see that denosumab is the first choice for preventing skeletal-related events in metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. In that study, they didn't show any real difference in, in overall survival or time to disease progression, but clearly there was a significant difference in the first skeletal-related event. So kind of our take-home message is bone health is really twofold. It's understanding bone mineral density loss and then also the propensity for prostate cancer to spread to the bone. Uh, for patients who have cancer-resistant prostate cancer, we're going to want them to be on calcium and vitamin D supplementation. Uh, if they need to prevent skeletal-related events, then you're going to want them on zolindronic acid or denosumab. Denosumab is our preferred agent. For both of these, we want to be aware of osteonecrosis of the jaw. We also want to consider hypocalcemia, so we'll monitor their calcium levels. Um, and really, you want to stratify patients based off of their risk for bone mineral density loss and risk for fracture. Those will be based off of the DEXA scan and the FRAC score. So moving on to radiopharmaceuticals for advanced prostate cancer. As we had already mentioned, uh, prostate cancer has a predisposition towards going to the bone. About 90% of patients with metastatic pressure-resistant prostate cancer will eventually have bone metastasis. And bone metastasis are associated with not only disability and pain, but decreased quality of life, increased cost, and a decreased survival. And so this uh, graphic shows uh, the decreasing survival with the presence of skeletal-related events and, uh, and with bone metastasis in patients with castor-resistant prostate cancer. So we want to be aware that these patients could benefit from treatment that's bone-directed. Before 2013, there weren't very good agents available. So really, we had strontium and samarium. And there was no survival benefit to these treatments, but they may have a palliative benefit to reduce the symptomatic bone pain. Obviously, the problem with these medicines were that they caused bone marrow suppression. They do remain in the AUA guidelines, but aren't frequently used. Now we have a new agent, radium-223 or alpha-radin, and it's an alpha-emitting radiopharmaceutical that mimics calcium and has a, uh, has a specific target to the bone. So 
this uh, uh, alpha-emitting radio pharmaceutical will go to that area and has a very short range because it's alpha particles. Uh, radium is given as an IV infusion provided every four weeks for a total of six treatments. Uh, some of the things to keep in mind is that radium is excreted through the GI tract, so some of the side effects you can get are diarrhea and nausea. The most concerning would be lymphocytopenia. That's an, uh, a side effect that happens in about 20% of patients. can be significant, even grade 3 or grade 4, and so you want to check blood counts before each dose of radium. So uh, the, the use of radium was predicated off of this trial, the Alsimka trial, which was a phase three uh, placebo-controlled trial of over 900 patients with metastatic cashier-resistant prostate cancer. All of them had at least two symptomatic bone metastases and did not have visceral metastasis. The patients could receive radium either before or after docetaxel, and the primary endpoint was overall survival. We see on, this, on the Alsimka trial that radium provided a significant overall survival benefit. And so that's what uh, resulted in its approval and, uh, and has really uh, changed the way that we can treat patients who have symptomatic bone metastasis in, uh, without visceral metastasis. So here's our AUA guideline for 2018. You see that uh, radium is with good performance status with symptomatic bone metastasis, uh, either before or after docetaxel. And it's also an option for patients with poor performance status if their poor, poor performance status is due to uh, effects of bone metastasis. So a summary of the AUA guidelines, if a patient has uh, good performance status with symptomatic bony metastasis, without visceral metastasis, then they may be a candidate for radium-223. And this would be either before or after docetaxel. Uh, it's also of the opinion of the AUA guidelines that a patient who has symptomatic bone metastasis and specifically having symptoms from their bony metastasis without having visceral metastasis may still benefit from radium-223. And so that's an option for some patients. It is important uh, to mention that in a recent study, the ERA223 study, in which uh, radium was combined with abiraterone, uh, the study was stopped early because the data safety monitoring found an increased rate of not only fractures but also death in patients who had the combined radium and abiraterone. And following this uh, stop of the trial, they have issued a, now, a new warning uh, telling clinicians that we should not prescribe concurrently radium and abiraterone. And so that's important. Um, and if a patient is on uh, uh, abiraterone or radium, you don't want to prescribe those concurrently. So the take home for uh, radio pharmaceuticals is that uh, radium uh, represents a standard for patients who have symptomatic bony metastasis in the absence of visceral metastasis. This could be for patients either before or after docetaxel. This is going to offer them the potential for an overall survival benefit. It's a well-tolerated treatment that's given once monthly for six months. You just need to monitor blood counts because patients may become uh, anemic or uh, thrombocytopenic. 
uh, and you don't want to combine radium with abiraterone because of the risk of increase for fracture or death. Good. Thank you, Dr. Stratton. So what is the risk of, of treating cancer with visceral disease and using radium-223? So radium is a, is a calcium uh, mimetic, and so it's going to go to areas of high bone turnover. It's focused in areas where the bone metastasis are present. So you don't treat the visceral metastasis. That's one of the reasons why we don't offer radium to patients who have visceral metastasis. Great. So there's a, uh, there's a question uh, in patients with uh, hormone-sensitive uh, metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. How does one decide between docetaxel and abiraterone? Well, I'll just uh, mention that in the charted trial, which was look, uh, using abiraterone and docetaxel, those patients that benefited were high-volume disease, and that was defined by greater than five lesions. Those uh, patients that uh, tolerate that uh, treatment tend to have better performance status. Uh, they're more active. Another factor you might want to consider is that the docetaxel androgen deprivation therapy is a, a shorter-term treatment. It really only lasts uh, six months uh, versus abiraterone, which is essentially lifetime. Uh, and then, of course, there's toxicity due to uh, the cost issues. And, uh, um, you know, with abiraterone, it's clearly a very expensive drug. Um, um, both of these uh, are FDA-approved at this time, however. Uh, the other thing, uh, just to again emphasize, uh, patients with more minimal disease at the present time, uh, the data would be more supportive of using abiraterone in that subset of patients. It also looks like we have a question about the use of radium in uh, treatment between before or after abiraterone or Xtandi. And really, uh, the sequencing of radium, it's important to uh, consider that patients need to have symptomatic bony metastasis and not have visceral metastasis. So as you progress through your uh, treatment options, when a patient becomes eligible for radium, you may want to prescribe it to them of course, if they don't have symptoms for their bone metastasis, then you would want to not use radium. So that may help in, in the treatment sequencing, but there's probably no specific sequence that will work well for any one particular patient. There's also a question that's uh, talking about uh, the fact that these drugs are not widely available throughout the, country, uh, throughout the world. Uh, so how do you, how do you treat uh, symptoms related to bone metastases? Well, Radiation to painful bony metastases is still uh, a widely used approach uh, for patients uh, who have failed androgen deprivation therapy with castration-resistant disease. Okay, so uh, thank you all for your attention. Uh, this is the uh, we're concluding this uh, now. Uh, in order to get credit for this, you can go to the uh, auanet.org/university to claim. Uh, to access the course evaluation uh, claim CME credit, and uh, you have to use today's keyword, which is birthday. I'd also point out the, that w there are two previous webinars uh, that are online right now that you can access. Uh, on October 17th, we'll also uh, be having a webinar uh, dealing with uh, uh, updates on the emergent treatment of M0 uh, castrate-resistant prostate cancer. 
Furthermore, there will be a live forum uh, that residents and fellows uh, can attend on November 27th, uh, 2018, and you're welcome to uh, join us for that as well. Uh, with that, I'll thank our presenters uh, for, uh, for uh, their time, and thank you all, and have a good evening. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's teleconference. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect.